If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 20. As you're turning there, I'll make a few comments. Uh, If you are new, uh, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jamin Roller. I'm one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. And so we used to be a campus of the Village Church, but as of uh, a week ago, really, we are Citizens Church. So this is our second Sunday as Citizens Church. And so there's a story behind all that. And if you don't know that story, we would love to, to share that story with you. And so we'll make some space available at the end of our services for you to come and kind of ask questions and hear about all that. Um, I also want to say this, we are in John uh, 20 this morning. And uh, last Sunday, we shared just some difficult news uh, and in sharing that difficult news, just the, uh, really the, the week has changed. In a lot of ways, there's much that's uh, changing around here because of that. Uh, and in going to John 20, I, I'm not, uh, we're not trying to move on from that or not being tone deaf in that. But in, in going to John 20 and looking at where we already were headed uh, in the series that we're in, we're doing just like what we did last week. And so last Sunday, we announced this news and then God led us by his word and where we were in looking at the death of Jesus. And in God's providence, God is going to lead us again this morning looking at uh, John 20, which is the greatest part uh, of the story of God. And there's a tremendous amount of hope and celebration in that. And it's true uh, that this is who God is and this is what God is doing. And so I say that to just say this. Uh, This is us as a church moving forward, moving forward like we said last Sunday with a limp, but moving forward uh, in trusting that God uh, has not changed and his mission for us has not changed. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, then uh, that conversation is better had face-to-face, and I will be in the students' room right after service with a few of our other elders, and we would love to talk to you uh, about that. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 20. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, this isn't the point, but uh, (laughs) the beloved disciple is John, and John's the one writing the book. And I think it's really shady that John put this verse in there. (laughs) Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Okay, John. Good job. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen clothes lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen clothes lying there. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, now lying with the linen clothes, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. We love the dramatic turns in the story. Whether it's a story that you've read or a movie that you've watched, uh, one of the parts that, uh, that we find ourselves uh, gravitating towards or maybe that we find ourselves most encouraged by uh, or remembering most is when there's some sort of turn that you didn't expect, when there's some sort of reversal, right? And so if it's like a, a war movie or an action movie, it's, it's when the, the fight is raging and the good guys are losing and the bad guys are winning and the good guys are knocked back and they're knocked back and they're knocked back. And at the moment when it's like all hope is lost, there's a turn. And reinforcements come or, or something happens and the good guys start winning and they go on into victory. It's this great reversal, right? 
or in the you know romantic story and the love story, it's when the relationship is all but over and trust was broken and there's this really tragic goodbye and so she's gonna get on an airplane and start a new life somewhere and she goes up the escalator and he is standing there with flowers and then Coldplay starts playing and it's just this <laughs> dramatic turn. This, the script flips and, and everything was going wrong and now things are headed towards right. My son and I watched The Sandlot a few months ago. It was his first time to see it. The Bible says, train up a child in the way he should go. And so I was trying to be obedient to that. Uh, there's this scene where the beast finally catches up to the boys. And this massive, what they call Godzilla dog, is standing there face to face with Scotty Smalls. Uh, and, and, and the music swells. And right when you're sure that his life is about to end, what happens? The dog licks his face. And when that happened, Asher turned to me with a smile on his face and he said, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> and we love the turn. We love the reversal. We, we love when the way that I have loved, I have come to love to describe it is we love when we are surprised by hope. When it feels like all hope was lost and yet all of a sudden hope appears out of nowhere or hope appears when you least expect it. We've been saying the last few weeks that the Bible is one story and we've been saying the last few weeks and in the last few weeks we've been at the climax of that story and it started in the garden. It goes to Jesus' trial and last Sunday we saw the, the cross and just the wounds of our Savior that minister to our wounds. And here in chapter 20, we are in the greatest turn there ever was. We get to see the dramatic reversal of death to life. And there's just no story with a better turn than this one. There is just no story that has a more beautiful, more unexpected, more earth shattering and history changing kind of turn than the fact that Jesus is alive. And it goes like this. He goes into the grave. And when Jesus goes into the grave, his movement, his claims, his promises, his followers, they all go in there with him. And um, if he stays dead, those things die. If he stays dead, all that he has done dies with him. And if he stays dead, then the Jewish leaders are right to kill him. Uh, Pilate's right to hand him over. Judas was right to betray him. Peter was right to deny him. Mary is right to come weeping. His disciples are right to stay hidden because it was all a lie. And if he stays dead, then uh, darkness reigns and sin spreads and death wins. Paul says it like this. Uh, if he does not rise from the dead, then this is all a huge waste of time. It's a paraphrase. Let me make the point this way. In AD 132, there was a man named Simeon Bar Kokhba. He led a revolt against Rome. It was called the Bar Kokhba Revolt. And he won. Against all odds, he won. He defeated Rome. He ran Rome out of Jerusalem. And so the people of God are able to worship freely again. And there are no Roman soldiers oppressing and nobody has to answer to Caesar. Uh, and, and they said about him because of that, he's the Christ. He's the anointed one. They said about him, he's the king. They said about him, he's the savior. They said about him that he's the one that we have been waiting for. In fact, they printed coins with his name on them and they dated those coins year one, because they thought in him, history was beginning all over again. They thought that in him, the world was beginning all over again. And you have never heard of him, most of you, until this moment. You don't see him in your Bible. You don't sing songs about him. You know why? Because in AD 135, the Roman Empire executed him. They killed him. 
just like they did Jesus. And his body goes in the grave. And three days later, three days after his body goes into the grave, nothing happened. Nothing. Uh, he keeps wasting away. His movement ends. His disciples fade. And in many ways, in any way that's consequential, he fades out of history and his influence fades out of history. Why? The story never turned. That story doesn't have a dramatic reversal. It went to death and it ended in death. That is not the Jesus story. Praise God. Uh, Jesus goes into the grave and God vindicates his son. And if he had not done that, then we would have never heard of him. We wouldn't be here, but he goes into the grave and God uh, rescues Jesus. He comes back to life. And so all that he said is true. This is the greatest history changing turn, death to life, old creation on its way out, new creation on its way in. If he stays dead, darkness reigns, sin spreads, death wins. But the moment he has life back in his body, the moment he breathes again, the moment he walks out of the tomb, it means that Jesus reigns and sin is paid for and death dies. The very thing we thought would be the end of him became the beginning for us. How beautiful is that? That's why he dies. He goes through death so that he could come out the other side and defeat death. Jonathan Edwards compares Jesus' death and resurrection to Jonah being swallowed by the fish. And, and I think it's really beautiful. He says it this way. The devil had, as it were, swallowed up Christ as the whale did Jonah, but it was deadly poison to him. He gave him a mortal wound in his own bowels. He was soon sick of his morsel and was forced to do by him as the whale did by Jonah. To this day, he is heart sick of what he then swallowed as his prey. There's a great turn that happens when Jesus turns from death to life. There's a great reversal that ushers in a world of peace and it ushers in a world that is healing the old world. And we've been talking about that, that Jesus came to rule and be king of that world. And here's what I wanna do as we walk through the rest of the chapter. I want us to see that because at the core of our belief in Jesus, because there is this turn, this dramatic turn from death to life, what we should expect and what we see here is that there is a cascade of turns that happen because of that turn. Meaning there are turns that happen in the lives of the disciples that Jesus is going to interact with. And there, those are the very turns that we should expect to happen in our own life. Jesus turns from death to life. And here's what it means. It means that those who follow him turn from sorrow to hope, from fear to peace, and from unbelief to Jesus. Sorrow to hope. Look at verse 11 with me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she, stood, uh, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels while sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbanai, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. The first turn that we see, Jesus goes from death to life and what that leads to is it leads to a turn from sorrow to hope. Mary's a follower of Jesus, loved by Jesus, was loyal to him through all of his suffering. And when we first read about her, she's outside of an empty tomb and we're seeing her sorrow compounded with more sorrow. The kind of sadness that you only know if you have experienced tragedy and in the middle of that tragedy, you get even more bad news. Mary uh, watches him die and watches him be put into the tomb and she goes and she sees the tomb empty and she believes that what that means is that his body was stolen. She is sad and she's met by even more sadness. It's not enough in her mind what's going on is it's not enough that they humiliated him in his death. They are humiliating him by stealing his body and that's where she's at. And then she turns and she sees Jesus. She doesn't know it's him but he says her name. And when he says her name, it says in verse 16, she turned and she cries out and she goes and she grabs hold of Jesus. So what we see in the immediate is that her weeping becomes joy, that her sorrow turns to relief in some ways. But we need to pay close attention um, because what Jesus says to her is so important for us to understand what we should expect from life because the tomb is empty. While there is joy and relief, this is not a turn from sorrow to joy. It's, a, it's a, a turn from sorrow to hope. Here's what I mean by that. What does Jesus say to her? His first words to her. He doesn't say, Mary, I'm alive. Heaven's here in its fullness. Now you'll live with me forever. Nope. He says, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father. Hear me. As soon as she gets him back, he tells her that he's going to leave again. As soon as she comes back, he says he's going to ascend to the Father. When he says, don't cling to me, he's preparing her. Hey, don't hold on too tightly because you're going to lose me again. In other words, do not keep holding on to me. So important. Listen, the empty tomb means the world is being healed. But the first word out of Jesus' mouth, uh, one who's made the turn from death to life, is him helping this woman understand that it's not all at once and there is work to do. In other words, it doesn't mean that all the pain's going to go away at once. What Jesus is doing is he's ushering in an age where there is hope, but it does not mean the absence of difficulty. It does not mean the absence of pain. And we see that here because he tells this woman who loves him very much, there are still goodbyes in the world. And he sends her to share the news that even though there are still goodbyes in the room, there is much to hope in. And this is an aside, but would you see the brilliance of God in writing his story? At the very beginning of the story, when you look in Genesis 3, it was a woman in a garden carrying the message of the serpent that brought ruin on the world. And now it's another woman in another garden carrying the message of the king that will restore the world. God is brilliant. But it's beginning. It's not yet complete. So we've used this language around here before. This is the already and the not yet. There are things that because of Jesus being alive uh, are already true and there's things because he's ascended and we're waiting for him to return that are not yet true. And I love how honest this is to our experience. <laughs> he rose 
Everything is changing. Sin and death are on its way out. It's a turn from sorrow to hope, but it's not a turn from sorrow to no more tears. Not yet. That day's coming, but not yet. And how important is that for us to be honest about? How many of us were born after the resurrection? All of us. You know what that means? Thank you for that hand, brother. You know what that means? (laughs) That means that all of your pain, all of your hard days is post-resurrection pain. And there's a sense uh, where on a Sunday like this, in a sermon like this, that could create some confusion. If it's death to life turn, why is there still so much uh, that is difficult? Why is there still so much that is disappointing, right? And especially right now with all that's happening at our church, how tone deaf would it be to say that the turn is from sorrow to uninterrupted, painless happiness? That's not true. You, you know better than that. And so do I. The empty tomb is not the absence of pain. I want you to see what Jesus is doing here. It's not the absence of pain, it's the presence of hope. Jesus is bringing in the age of hope. Mary, I'm alive, don't cling to me, I'm ascending. His ascension means he's going to return and we live in between his resurrection and his return, which is all that we need to be able to hope in the midst of the difficulty and struggle. The best way I know to explain this is, is um, to use an illustration that it's, it's somewhat like being engaged, right? Uh, I proposed to Carrie in November of 2007. We went to a park and I had picked out this trail in the park that had a bridge in the middle of it and underneath the bridge was water and, and I was gonna propose to her on that bridge. And so um, my plan was, and what we did was I had lined the trail with these different boxes And so there were sets of boxes, two sets of boxes, and then another set of two boxes, and then one box, and then a box on the bridge. And I had filled those uh, boxes with things from our life. And so we're walking, we get to the park, we're walking, and the first set of boxes has things in it from uh, her childhood, and then the other one had things from my childhood. And so we open hers up, and it's like ballerina slippers and Barbie dolls, we open mine up. It's like action figures and uh, like my first Bible and stuff like that. And then we get to the next set of boxes, and it's things from her uh, life kind of as a teenager and then my life as a teenager. So we open hers up and it's like all of these awards that she won and all these plaques and all this. And we open mine up and it's all these participation trophies. And um, I've always been good at trying. So uh, next we get to this box and it's a box from kind of early on in our dating relationship. And so it's uh, some pictures and a receipt from our first date. I'd taken her to this super fancy place called Chili's and uh, I'm pretty sure she bought. And so then we get to the bridge and there's a, a box on the bridge with a Bible in it and I open it up and I read to her from Mark where Jesus says the two uh, shall become one flesh. And I just said, look, Carrie, I, what I believe is I believe that from, since, since we were kids that God has been taking two lives and making them one life so that the one life together might more clearly picture uh, the gospel. And I just said, will you marry me? And she said, I will. And so Almost, I think maybe the next day or two days later, she had picked a date for our wedding. So I don't know if you know anything about the love languages, but I would add one because Carrie's love language is having a plan. That's how she operates. And so she picked July 26th as the wedding date. And in that moment, my life had changed. My life was, was lived in between two events. And almost everything about my life was shaped by those two events. I was living in between uh, the I will, I will marry you, and, and looking forward to the I do, right? 
in those months of my life, and immediately certain things started changing. We started buying things for the home that we would have together. We started counseling. And so there were things that were real about being engaged that were just not true when we were dating. And yet there was so much that we were still waiting for that wouldn't be true until we got married. So there was an all readiness to the seriousness of our relationship. And then there was a not yetness to it, right? And I lived that time between the I will and the I do. Christian, our lives are lived. All of life is lived in between the two great Christological events, one in the past and one of the future, looking back at Jesus's resurrection and looking forward to his return. When we look back on his resurrection, we believe that he's not dead anymore. And he has been raised from the dead, not in a spiritual, metaphorical sense. He physically, the body that went into the tomb came back out. He has a physical, glorified body. Look, God made you body and soul. Any sort of salvation that just rescues your soul and doesn't rescue your body is a half partial empty salvation. Jesus went into the grave and his defeat of death is only a defeat if the body that was defeated raises in victory. And he did. That's why she can cling to him. That's why his disciples will touch him. And it means that our greatest enemy, the thing that we most fear has been defeated by Jesus. And we look forward he ascends, which means he's coming again. And we know in looking forward that the no, the no tears day is coming. The sorrow that turns into no more pain and no more difficulty, that day is coming. The day when God in Jesus takes everything sad and makes it untrue and he brings rightness and justice. And there will be no more not yet. There will only be what is for all of eternity. Friends, hope, real, abiding sustaining hope is found in looking back on Jesus risen and looking forward to Jesus returning. But there is nothing more foundational to being a Christian than that, that we live in between those two events. Have you made that turn? Has the turn from death to life in a resurrected Jesus, is that coming out in your life as a turn from sorrow to hope? I'm not asking if you've made the turn from sorrow to happiness or from sorrow to no more pain, that's dishonest, but in the pain, in the disappointment, whatever that means to you, is your heart turning towards what he has done and turning towards what he will do. He sends Mary with these beautiful words. He says, go and give this message and tell them that I'm ascending to my father and your father. I'm ascending to my God and your God. He could have just said, go tell them I'm ascending to our father Go tell them I'm ascending to our God, but he's making a point. What he has accomplished means the relationship that he has with the Father, the relationship that he has with God, because of what he's done is now something that we have with him. And what did the Father just do for the Son? He carried him through death. He raised him back to life. How much confidence should we have that he will do the same thing for us? Because we now, because of Jesus, we are to him what Jesus is to him. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for, what's the word? Fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And as the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There's a turn. 
in history from death to life. And that turn leads to a cascade of turns. And the first is sorrow to hope. And, and this that we see here is that there is a turn from fear to peace. I don't know an emotion as crippling as fear. Uh, and in some ways, I think fear is probably the soil from which a lot of other emotions grow, like anxiety or anger. You think about the kind of fear. We have a long list of things that we're afraid of, right? Fear of man, fear of failure, fear of rejection, fear of death, fear of being insignificant, fear of the future. We have acronyms to try and normalize our fear, fear of missing out, right? The disciples are hiding behind a locked door. And what are they experiencing? Fear. Plagued with it. Um, the, the same guys who executed their Messiah, the same guys who executed their leaders are more than likely on the hunt for them. They know who Jesus' disciples were. They know that God, uh, Jesus had worked through them. And so most likely they are next. And so they're behind a locked door and they're afraid, afraid of death and afraid of pain. But it's not just fear of the Jews, right? They're afraid because of what they've lost and afraid because of what they don't know. Like they are despairing because Jesus isn't there anymore. Jesus was the plan right? There was no plan B for them. The rest of their life was going to be marked by him and led by him. And so they are in every way you can imagine afraid. And then Jesus walks in the room. And I don't want to rush too quickly to the joy that they experience because consider this, Jesus, a resurrected Jesus walking into a room filled with men who ran away from him and betrayed him, that might not be good news for them. It might not be good news for Peter, who his last interaction with Jesus was Jesus observing him, denying him three times when Peter swore he wouldn't. And so can you imagine, at, at just first blush, first glance, he's alive, he's powerful enough to defeat death. They are the ones that bailed on him. Surely there's some initial fear. And what does Jesus do? The first word he speaks, he says, peace, peace be with you. The last time he sees them, they're bailing or lying or denying. He opens his mouth. He doesn't call them to repent. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't shout at them. He doesn't even give them a command. He gives them a gift. He gives them what they don't deserve. He gives them what they didn't earn. And almost, almost as if to answer the objection before they even ask it. He comes in and he speaks, peace, peace be upon you. And then almost as if he knows that they're like, how could there be peace between us with all that we've done? What does he do? He lifts out his arms. He shows them his side. He shows them his wounds. He shows them the price that he paid so that peace could exist with, between the two of them as a gift and between them as a gift, right? He draws their eyes in the compassion and love and grace and strength that is our risen king who went from death to life. He takes these men from fear to peace. He draws their eyes away from themselves and away from their failures and away from their shame to him and what he's done his wounds and his scars, and they respond. His wounds have silenced that guilt and shame, and it says they were glad to see the Lord. What a turn. Fear to peace. What a dramatic reversal. Look, is that turn happening in your life? As you follow Jesus, who went from death to life, who's alive, as you follow him, is there a turn happening in your heart from fear? to peace. Maybe you are like me, and in a moment of honesty, you would say sometimes, but not really. 
uh, in my life what that has meant and, and just in my observations as a, as a pastor, what that often means, like if there's more fear than there is peace, often that means that I have either been looking in the wrong place or I have been looking to the wrong person. Looking in the wrong place, it means this. It means Jesus is in the room. Jesus is in the room and he is inviting me to see his wounds and he is showing me the peace that he has secured and all I can see is my own sin. I never make the turn away from self to him, right? Which is, friends, which is a subtle way of saying, I think what I have done has more power than what he has done. We said it last week, looking to anything but Jesus is never enough and it costs more than we have. Looking to him means he is all we need because he paid everything that we owed. And I need you to know that the looking to him means looking away from ourselves, looking away from even our failures. I'm not saying be dishonest about what's going on in your life. I'm saying do not believe the lie that somehow you've committed some sin that has disqualified you from the peace that he offers from the one who beat death. Look, you don't know me and you don't know how I think or you don't know what I've done and you don't know my past and I don't, I really don't. Not most of you. Here's what I do know. I know that these men had a better argument than you do for why they don't deserve his peace. They did. In the sound of his voice, in the sight of his scars, shut their mouth and open their hearts and you are not an exception to that kind of grace. You're not. The fear also might not just be looking in the, in the wrong place but looking to the wrong person. Like if I'm at peace with Jesus and that's a peace that can't be taken away from me and that's unchanging and yet my life is still marked by fear, especially relational fear, what that might be, it might mean that I am not living from the peace I have with Jesus but I am living for the peace that comes when everyone else is pleased with me. No one's mad at me. Uh, everyone loves me and esteems me, is impressed with me, and no one can see my faults, and no one can see my weaknesses, and even those who have rejected me, I am on my way to earning that acceptance back, and I am all that my spouse needs, and I'm all that my kids need, and I'm all that my friends need, and I'm all that my parents need, and let me let you in on a little secret that's not so secret. That never happens. Never happens. People are fickle, and you're not God. Uh, people are fickle and I'm not God. P people's standards of, of uh, what it will take from you to find you acceptable are always changing, are they not? And so listen, when I live for the peace that comes when everyone is pleased with me, I'm never secure and fear is always ruling my heart. I'm always wondering when I leave the interaction, are they mad at me? Did I say the right thing? Are we still okay? Was I impressive enough? Was I smart enough? Was I godly enough? The peace I have with Jesus is so different. It is for me, but it's not from me. You know what that means, brothers and sisters? It is unthreatened by my performance. It's unthreatened by my failures. And it is enough to bring peace in your life even if it's all you've got. Richard Baxter says it this way. He that is with the king is not alone, though forsaken by all others. I, I love this. He on whom the sun shines is not without light, though all his candles are put out. If God be our God, he is our all. He is with us who is infinitely good, alone fit to be the perpetual delight of our souls, to have peace with Jesus because of Jesus is to have the sun shining on you forever. It's to have the light of the sun set on you forever. And you know what the relationships in your life are and the relationships in my life, they're candles and praise God for them and praise God for the light that they give and praise God for the, the community that we find in them, but they are not the source of light for your life. They're not the source of light for your peace. And if one goes out, you're not left in the dark, you're not. 
That will only be a peace that we live out of if we treasure him as the one whose peace we most want. And that may be the conversation that we need to be most honest with ourselves about. I want us to see this. Here's what the peace does in the life of the disciples. The peace they have with Jesus that was gifted to them spills out of their life as a courage, a courage that we have been blessed by. Here's what I mean. He says to them, peace, and he speaks peace over them again. This time, it's not a peace that makes them right. He doesn't show them his scars. It's a peace that sends them out from behind locked doors into the world around them to take that peace to the world around them. So it says he is sending them. He uh, breathes on them and says, receive the spirit. This is in the moment. They get the spirit. uh, They get the spirit as seen in Acts. But Jesus is preparing them to wait for that. And then he says this confusing statement. He says, um, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it will be withheld. What does that mean? I've never been to a church that had like an unforgiveness ministry or anything like that. So let me explain so no one leaves here and tries to do something weird. Uh, These men are hiding from the Jewish leaders and the Jewish leaders were the ones that were arbiters of someone's rightness with God. So they managed the temple and they managed the law and they managed the writings. And what Jesus is saying here, it's such a huge shift. He's saying now, because of what Jesus has done, because he's risen again, the power to forgive, the power to be made right with God is in the message of the risen King. Who has that message? These men. Who have been entrusted with that message? These men. Here's what he's saying. If you go from here and you preach and declare and live out the message of death to life that you've experienced from a risen king, forgiveness is made available to all who hear. But if you stay in your fear, if you stay behind this locked room and keep this to yourself, that message of peace will be withheld. And what do they do? They storm out of that room into the world. There is such a dramatic turn from fear to peace, like the men hiding because they're so afraid eventually go all throughout the world with this message of the risen king. Like if you think about Peter, in a matter of days, he stands up in front of thousands and he says this as recorded in the book of Acts. He preaches this sermon, Jesus, this Jesus who you delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, the one you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What did God do? God raised him up loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it from hiding behind locked doors to standing in front of thousands. And what does he have to say? God raised him up and I've seen him. I've seen him alive again. He's offered peace between me and him and he offers you that same peace. What a turn, especially if you consider that uh, 10 of these 11 fearful men would have so much courage that they would actually give their lives preaching this message of the risen king. Has that turn happened in your heart? Has uh, fear turned to peace in such a way that it is taking you into parts of the world that used to scare you and parts of your life that used to scare you and now you're standing in those places that used to be places of fear and you're standing in them with courage that says he's risen. I believe he's alive and everything's changing because he's alive that's happened in your home? Is that happening in your job? Is that happening in your neighborhood? And if you hear that and your initial response is fear because it might mean rejection or it might mean loss, remember, it might cost you a candle, but you won't lose the light of the sun. Look at verse 24. There is death to life, sorrow to hope, fear to peace. And now 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord, 
But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then Thomas, then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands, put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right after this, I want you to know that John concludes his book. There's a, there's a chapter 21, which we'll walk through next week and end the series of John together. Uh, but chapter 21 is kind of the, the wrap up. But this is his crescendo. He says in, the, in 30, uh, Jesus did many other signs. The ones I've told you, I've told you that you might believe he's the Christ. And so what that means is the Thomas story is his crescendo to the point he's trying to make. The Thomas story is the one he puts right before he says, and here's why I wrote the book, and why would this story be the one he chooses? Thomas is told by the disciples that Jesus rose again, and Thomas says, I won't believe. I can't believe he made the turn from death to life unless I see him. And so Jesus says, okay, and he shows up to Thomas, and he shows Thomas the wounds, and he meets Thomas in whatever his, his qualifications were, and then Thomas opens his mouth, and he makes the boldest confession recorded in the book of John. He says, my God and my king. John has been writing all these I am statements. Why? He wanted us to know that Jesus is who? God. And that's what Thomas says. He's my God. And John has been writing this book so that we would know that Jesus, what? He rules and reigns over God's new world. And Thomas says, he's my king. And then what happens? Jesus says, blessed are those who believe, who don't get what you got. Who's that? That's you. That's you. That's us. That's why John writes this the way he does, because he wants his readers to know that you are those of you who make the turn like Thomas did, those of us that make the turn from unbelief to Jesus, who don't require actually seeing him in the flesh. We are blessed. Listen, the turn is not from unbelief to no more doubt. I want you to know that. The turn is not from sin to no more sin. The turn is not from questions to no more questions. There's space for all of that. The turn is from I don't believe to Jesus is alive. It's from I don't believe to Jesus. It's from unbelief to a risen king. And let me ask you this. Do you believe that he turned from death to life? Do you believe that he is alive? Can you say like Tom, even if this is all you can say and you've got a lot of things that you're still trying to figure out and there's a lot of things that maybe you struggle with and wrestle with, can you say at a base level when you think of Jesus, he's my God and he's my king? How do you know? Well, is sorrow turning to hope in your pain? Is fear turning to peace around the things that you are just most scared of? I, I think we could continue having that conversation on an individual level because of where we are as a church. I wanna stop having it individually and I wanna say some things that are true about us corporately that I believe now more than I ever have. Uh, with everything that's been happening here in the last week or in the last 10 days really, uh, this church, you, <laughs> let me put it this way, I have been so surprised and so encouraged by how this place has responded amidst a lot of brokenness. Um, 
the grace that's come from you and the godly grief that's come from you and the wisdom and the hope that is poured out of you. There have been so many, I didn't see that coming moments for me as you have loved and as you have responded and as you, and so like the way that, that, I, that I have put it as I've talked to others just about how encouraged I am by Citizens Church. Uh, and I'm not saying this in any way to, dis, to, to belittle or diminish the difficulty, but as we have been squeezed and we have, what has come out is a kind of hope and faith that could only come from a people who have turned from unbelief to the risen Jesus. Could only come from a people who have turned from that kind of doubt and have placed their faith and their hope and their security in a king, in a leader, in a savior who's more powerful than death, which means nothing else will thwart him. Nothing could attack him or threaten him. Like as I've waited through this week and I've studied this passage at the same time, I have thought so often none of this would even make sense or none of this would even be possible if the tomb wasn't empty. But it is, and I believe that, and I've seen you believe that in ways that are just such a gift and a strengthening to my heart. Because we live on the other side of the turn, and we do, because Jesus went from death to life, I am seeing in us, even now, um, amidst our limping, amidst our brokenness, amidst even confusion, I'm seeing in us the truth of the age-old hymn. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, and life is worth living just because he lives. That is true because the tomb is empty. That is true because our king is alive. That is true because we have a hope that is historical and it's real and we are a people who can look back and we can see the turn from death to life. We can look forward and we can see the world going to be consummated and made right and everything sad being untrue. And as we live in the in-between, I am seeing that risen king comfort us and lead us and guide us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy I thank you for these people. I, I thank you for a church that is, um, for a church that I knew loved you. And for a, a people, God, that I am confident have learned through pain to hold and to cling to you. Uh, and I'm just, God, so desperate for you to continue bringing unity and bringing peace. I pray, God, for those in the room who uh, are, are just needing your presence to make the turn from sorrow to hope. I pray for those in the room that are just needing your presence to make the turn from fear to peace, to make the turn from unbelief to you, Jesus. Would you minister? Would you appropriate your spirit and your work in a way that only you can and only you know how to do, God? Would you do that? And just continue strengthening and, and uniting. And I, and I just, God, I thank you for what I see as a sifting that you're doing among us. And on the other side of that sifting, there's a lot that I don't know, but on the other side of that sifting, I know we get more of the risen king. We hope more and we're more confident and we feel more secure in the one who beat death and the one who will soon split the sky bringing heaven to earth. We love you and we thank you. And it is a joy to be a people of the resurrection. It is a joy to be the people who believe in the great reversal, the great dramatic turn of your story. We find great hope in that, my God. We love you. Amen.